There is a bit of explicit content in the podcast you are about to hear. It's Monday, February 5th, 2018. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. The Dow dropped 666 points Friday. <sighs> and over 1,100, close to 1,200 today. Today's was the largest point drop ever. But it's also kind of a meaningless statistic. The point is the price of a stock. And the Dow is calculated so anciently, it's not really well-weighted. In percentage terms, the Dow was down 4.6% today. And the Dow ain't even the best index. So the other numbers are the S&P 500 slumped 4.1%. NASDAQ dropped uh, almost 3.8%. And it matters, I'm not saying it doesn't matter, that 666-point drop That was, in percentage terms, something like the 530-something worst day. And today, the biggest Dow drop ever, just in percentage terms. So if you had $1,000 in expertly invested in just a Dow index fund, your $1,000 is now worth $995.60 today. That's not good. It would be better if it were worth $1,004. But that's what it is. And that 1,200 or nearly 1,200-point drop, in percentage terms, there were 100 worse days. Okay, there's this weird feeling I have with this stock drop that was bad but not that bad. And the feeling is maybe I'm a little bit poorer, but I think it made Trump mad. And that's good. Now, if you asked me yesterday, hey, would you pay 400 bucks so Trump gets upset? I'd say, no, it's not worth 500 bucks to me to make Trump upset. Probably everything makes Trump upset. But now that it's happened and it's cost me more than 500 bucks, I'm not saying it's worth it, but that is the big silver lining. The sad thing about the Dow is it often gets correlated, well, to a lot of things in Trump's calculation, like everything worth the economy. It often gets correlated to the state of the American worker. And the rebuttal to that is also kind of unsatisfying. The rebuttal usually focuses on the fat cats who invest in stocks. No, to me, the sad thing is that stocks, which you should If you can in any way try to get some direct piece of by, say, investing in an index fund, stocks are the best investment. They do reverberate out to the economy. And yes, the rich will always get richer or be more affected by something like the stock market. But that doesn't mean the fluctuations or long-time rise, long-time falling of the stock market doesn't help the regular people or affect the regular people. But the sad thing is that this is one of those situations where the regular guy, the working guy, has these good things happening, which is unemployment is going down And it's going down so much that wages are going to go up. And that's what we've been waiting for, for the worker to actually see in his paycheck the wages to rise. But that is the exact thing that is making the stock market go down. The stock market's big equity bubble is premised on this fact that, along with other things like interest rates, it's premised on the fact that that working guy who we on Wall Street say we're working for, if his wages go too high, well, now's the time to punish it because that could cause inflation and we live in dire fear of inflation. Mostly, the stock market is somewhat correlated with the health of the regular person. Sometimes it's negatively correlated like today, but it's not a perfect correlation. So while it's insanely stupid to think about the stock market like Donald Trump does in his tweets and equate that with the health of the economy, it's also illustrative on these certain occasions when in fact the stock market going down is the indicator that the regular guy is finally doing okay. And you want to know what the really bad thing was? 
that really made Trump sad. He was giving a speech and the Dow was going down so much that CNN, MSNBC and Fox, yes, Fox all cut away from the speech. Now it's serious. On the show, JT bringing sexy back. But in fact, all he brought back was a sexy backlash. Why? Has something to do with the fact that he wore a deer on his shirt. But first, Phil Rosenthal was the creator of Everybody Loves Raymond. And then he hosted his own show where he went gallivanting around the world looking for things to eat. The program now has a new name. It's called Somebody Feed Phil. It has a new network, Netflix. But it has the same old Phil. He gallivants here next. Feed Phil, a new show from Netflix. Six episodes. I don't want to ruin it, but Phil gets fed. Everybody loves Raymond. He was the uh, executive producer of that show, Phil Rosenthal. But this new show is a little bit of a variation on his old show on PBS, which was called I'll Have What Phil's Having. So we're going to discuss the shows. We're going to discuss the difference of the network, and we're going to discuss some of the delicious cuisine throughout the world that Phil goes and investigates. Hello, Phil. Welcome back. Hello. I love being back. It is great to have you. Now, your Israel, yes, your Tel Aviv episode. Yes. It's very hard to watch something about Israel without thinking about politics, especially yes. if you're someone like me and we think about politics. There's not a lot of politics yes. in the episode. But I had this one observation. Please. So there is this um, line of thinking about Israel that demographics are going to do what the bomb can't, which means that if you look at the birth rates of Arabs and Palestinians, compare it to the birth rates of Jewish Israelis, you know, the Arabs have been and are going to pass the Jews. So you wonder, well, why is that? Why are the Jews giving birth less than the Arabs are? And I think you offer a solution. It's the soup. The soup makes you have sex less often. Oh, <laughs> that particular stinky... That soup, the fen- no the sex fenugreek, soup. The fenugreek that they boil down, they say, it could be delicious, but it could also be a little arm pity. Arm they pity. say, wow, you're really selling it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, you, why don't you put that on the sign outside? And then they say you can't, you, you don't want to have sex for two or three days well, after she, eating the soup. She says... It make a little smell from it. in the body and in the peep. Two, three days, no sex. Two or three days, no sex? <laughs> no sex, because the Not a problem for me. <laughs> no problem for me. I'm married almost 30 years. I'll have to soup. Yeah, give me the soup if it's good. I'll, by the way, in some cases, better than what the sex might have been. But I love how you said you were going to get political and went to the joke of the stinky soup. I'm going to get political on you. Yeah, yeah. So Lisbon, New Orleans, yeah. Bangkok, Tel Aviv, Mexico City. Saigon. And Saigon. Yeah. When you go to New Orleans and you have this great Israeli or Tel Aviv yeah. cuisine and it's great there, yeah. does that contradict your notion that if you love the food, you have to go to the place? Go where to they the source. Go to the source. It's pretty simple. You like tacos? You know where they have good tacos? <laughs> Mexico. Turns out. Hey, you like New York Chinese food? You know where the Chinese food is really good? <laughs> so, so you go and you see. By the way, don't you think environment makes food taste different yes. anyway? Yes. So just that. That alone. Yeah. Triggering you psychologically. Yeah. And they do experiments like ice cream on a blue plate tastes better. Now take that idea of the blue plate and change it to an entire country around you that you wake up in, that you walk to the restaurant in, yes. that you hear the people talking. Yes. It has to affect you if psychologically so much. they took that so mango off the tree. Yeah. And sliced it right in front of you, and it had a just a slightly different texture and temperature, and you're sitting in this garden in mm-hmm. Thailand. Mm-hmm. Yes, it's going to taste better. It's going to. Do you think that when Americans Americanize cuisine, 
they change it, is there a consistent thing they do to it to make it a little worse? Do they, I don't know, add mayonnaise? Like, what is They the, add mayo and put it on white bread. Yeah. As you've gone throughout the world and you've yeah. tried all these different kind of cuisines, can you predict what the American version yeah, will taste it's like? Easy. What is it does? It's just blander. Blander. They take right. the spices out. Yeah. God forbid we should offend your sensitive palate mm-hmm. for people who don't eat, you know, anything but Twinkies and McDonald's. This you'll you'll like this version of the Chinese food. Or by the way, let's add sugar. Yeah. How does that happen, do you think? Do you think the chefs in America are just playing to their perceived customers or the first yes. two people they give it to yes. or like, oh, it's too But spicy. isn't it like everything? Like everything, like if we have a problem with TV and movies, right. it's because there's kind of a generic quality put over everything. They don't even realize that the more specific you get when you're writing, Absolutely. the more you hit everybody. Right. When somebody says, that's the best Chinese food, guess why they're saying that? Because it's most authentic feeling yeah. and has some heat to it and some spice and some, you know, oh, they use the green peppercorns that actually numb your tongue so that the spice, you can tolerate more spice. It's a genius thing. And if you find the restaurant that does that, it's going to be your favorite because it's like a magic trick in your mouth. I've heard it said that it's especially true with Europe. American food can never really come close to the best French or Italian cuisine just because of the laws around ingredients. Our ingredients allow for preservatives, can be so much less fresh. The European Union rules will not allow that sort of thing in their ingredients. And even if a chef goes out and gets hand-picked vegetables and hand-picked meat, the cooking oil is going to be different than the cooking oil in Europe. Think, little things we don't even think. The lard, the quality of the lard they put in the pan. You're not wrong, but there are exceptions. Obviously, if you go to Dan Barber's restaurant or Alice Waters' restaurant, the legendary Chez Panisse, they are literally farm to table. They are the pioneers, Alice especially. Dan is an innovator and is trying to get the nutritive quality in the soil that, you know, the Europeans preserve. The food tastes better. Yes. Tastes better. This is, we got to get on that train. And you would think that would be universal. You would think that everyone would be able to recognize that you would think. Yeah. I don't know what's happening, (laughs) but let's deregulate everybody so they're free to poison everybody. Right? (laughs) Poison us with your delicious mangoes. Or I was in Colombia once and I had what I guess we call here a dragon fruit. And it was so good. And I I had never had it here. And I came back and I tried the virgin here. And it's so bad. It literally tastes like nothing. It's the most beautiful looking exotic thing. You open it. Oh, my God. It's like poppy seed something inside. Oh, my God. You take a scoop of it. It's like... I don't need to eat this again. Yeah. I've been chasing that dragon fruit for years, let me tell you. Yeah. yeah. But you know, there's also a law. We can't bring in the fruits from other countries to, unless they're, you know. Who's that really helping that law? It's like the drugs from Canada. They say it's to protect the consumer. It's not. I think it's to protect the, the fruit slash drug companies. I guess so. Yeah. I guess so. This is, a, this is a major problem. By the way, the mango, the mangoes that we get here, I think it's king of fruits. Correct me if I'm wrong, people. <laughs> is there a better fruit than a mango? Send your letters to Phil. Yes. I'm not touching that one. That's a I'm, I'm here King to of be, fruits. I'm here to be controversial today. <laughs> the mango in Thailand, I'm going to say, single best fruit. Well, the mangosteen, the Jewish mango, <laughs> that's another one. Now, with that, do you have to cut off the tip of that? Hey. <laughs> <laughs>
There is one that you do. part Jew coming out. (laughs) So the other day I went to uh, this event. My friend Dan Pashman hosts the Sporkful. He does live events with a woman named Mimi Schwartz, 93 years old, food writer for the New York Times and New York Magazine. And there's a question and answer period. And I said, I don't know if you know Phil, but he has this show. I think it was the PBS show, I'll Have What Phil's Having. And she said, who cares what Phil's having? Who is this Phil? I don't care what he's having. Wow, she could be related because I think my mother when I say when I Skype with my parents I'll Which say in every episode yes yeah. I say ah you want you want to see what I ate today she goes not really <laughs> but she likes the fact that her boys are working together because Richard's oh, with you yeah. in yes the show. my my brother the favorite yeah my father we used to ask him what he'd want for his birthday and my brother and I fought all the time so if he asked my dad what he wanted he'd say two nice boys yeah. that's all he wants two nice boys and now look we get along nicely and we we have a great time it's it's really the the highlight of my life to get to do this with him well he's and your to, employee to, now he has to be nice to you maybe that's it well i don't know if he's technically your employee on the hierarchy no i could get rid You're of the him if i cow. wanted oh, you could, yeah yeah i think by the way, Richard, if you're listening, uh, me be a little nicer. <laughs> What's the age difference and who's older? I'm older by five years. Okay. And, you know, he did something to me early on that I'll never forgive him for, which is my mother one day, I was five, my mother went to the hospital and he just came back with her <laughs> and didn't leave. Yeah. Literally, this is how I felt. My replacement is here. You know, the reason the sitcom was called Everybody Loves Raymond, that was something Ray's actual older, jealous brother said about him. Right. Right. So I love that it was that point of view. And then it took me years to even understand deep in my own head. The reason I liked it was because that's how I felt. Everybody loved Richard. Right. <laughs> did, did they love Richard or was it your he's perception? He's adorable. Yeah. No, he's that adorable. goddamn Richard. He's cute. He's yeah. sweet. He's he's everything you want in a kid and a person and a man and a dad. He's the best person. It's infuriating. You got to hate this guy. This is my theory that you should have struggles and not the kind of put upon struggles, not the kind of fake concocted struggles. Like it's good to suffer a bit as long as it doesn't break you. And then you not just come out better in the long run, but that's that's the source material. That's what you draw. We're we're on the same wavelength here because when people ask me how to write and what motivates you, I tell them it's worry. Yeah. I worry. I wish I didn't. I don't like this negative aspect to the creative process. I wish it was just easy and thing, but I worry a lot and and I fret over, is this going to be any good at all? Will anybody care? Look at Mrs. Schwartz. <laughs> yeah. The fact that you said that, I'll be thinking about that later. My life is very good. I have to tell you, Mike, it's fine. <laughs> But I'm going to think about Mrs. Schwartz, Mrs. Schwartz and how, how do I get her back, Mrs. I Schwartz? I think she's winnable. I think you can. Doesn't Mrs. Food. Schwartz understand that the food is really the food and my little jokes are just the way to get you in so that you right. can connect to other people in other cultures? And not every viewer is maybe an expert on food. You reach out to them by giving them a travel log and you show them about culture and they learn facts like most of the world's population lives within 2,000 miles of Bangkok. You're right. There's a lot of learning. And in this series as opposed to PBS, is there more an emphasis on the local guides? Every episode has a bunch of local guides and I yes. love them. Yes, I love them too, and they're a necessity for yeah. me, especially if I've never been to the place before. Right. And so as I'm learning, hopefully you're learning. Last time we talked, and I know this about you, very unadventuresome eater growing up. It was thrust upon you, and then you had garlic for the first time, and your yes. taste buds opened. So 
I assume that there was still the process of you pushing yourself and pushing boundaries with food for a long time. Yes. Does that still exist? Are there yes. boundaries you still have to push? Well, I don't want to eat bugs, especially. Right. But once in a while, if you saw the Mexico City thing, yeah, yeah. here's a sauce. It's made with ants in it. The mayonnaise is made with ants. And it's going to save the world, apparently, right? Because it's yes, so, so plentiful protein. and so much protein. Get used to it, people. And the verdict on the ants was? delicious mm-hmm. because all it was was salty it added this kind of salt in a unique way and i'm not saying unique because it was ants i'm yeah. saying a kind of salt that you don't get from salt and am i now mr ant that i want ants on every no but it was certainly interesting and i got it and i got what they got about it let's talk for a second about the transition from pbs to netflix yes tell me if i'm wrong netflix doesn't require as much hand-holding of the viewer as pbs does i think you're right you start off just you you're talking the camera right we're conditioned we've watched tv shows before yes. maybe the average age of our viewer is in 71 yes. We're just going to start in. You're just talking to the audience. Now we know what we get. The other strange thing is this uh, phenomenon of binging. Yeah. Which I really don't, me me being a certain age, first of all, the show's not a cliffhanger. You did a spoiler (laughs) alert at the beginning. Yes. Don't worry. I can, spoiler alert, I live. Yeah. He gets fed. (laughs) I get, I'm fine. Don't worry. You know, we spend months on each episode, editing and pre-production and shooting itself, It's a documentary of an hour of a place. I want you to digest it as if you had a big meal and really get it. Can a binge also be we're going to take a week to do it or Mm -hmm. a weekend to do it? Does it have to be bang, 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 one after the other? Well, we we leave it up to the consumer. Can you do that, by the way? Not as an adult with responsibility. I always have this fantasy that I'll have some... uh, a disease that's not life-threatening, but definitely debilitating for a week. So you can do this. So then I'd be, I have the three or four shows that I would binge with my not life-threatening, but somewhat debilitating disease. I hope you get that. Thank you, Phil. That's the I nicest thing enjoy, anyone's ever said. I want you to enjoy the shows. Phil Rosenthal is the creator of Somebody Feed Phil. And they did on different continents. It's excellent. Thank you, Phil. Thank you. And now the spiel. You want to know how lame I am? I didn't even know Justin Timberlake had a new album out. Want to know how cool I am? I didn't even care Justin Timberlake had a new album out. Is SZA going to cut a track with him? Does SZA pronounce it SZA? I just want to seem cool. But you really want to know how really lame I am? I didn't know that not knowing about Justin Timberlake actually made me kind of cool. Justin Timberlake's the kind of artist about whom one uses the word talented. You don't love Justin Timberlake unless you're a 16-year-old girl and it's 2003. But you got to respect the guy. He's a good dancer. He's a good showman. A couple of his songs are good. He's talented. And I don't know if a lot of people knew this, but for a time there, about a dozen years back, Sexy was lost. Sexy had gotten some bad advice and Sexy was wandering alone in the wilderness. I mean, Sexy said it wanted some me time, but I think we really knew what was going on. Sexy was just MIA. Sexy was checked out. And then, I think you know what happened. I'm bringing Sexy back. Justin Timberlake brought Sexy back. He did that. So thanks, JT. And Sexy thanks you too. So last night, Justin Timberlake performed at the halftime show of the Super Bowl. I came into it thinking, all right, here's a pop star who I don't love, but who certainly 
talented, who I would guess is respected by the people who like pop music. Maybe he's truly celebrated by the people who needed sexy at a crucial time in their lives, a time when sexy wasn't there. Uh, The answer is no. It turns out everybody hates Justin Timberlake. Sorry, sorry. All the woke people hate Justin Timberlake. So do a lot of people who probably reject the word woke as overly reductive, which just tells me soon it will be time to bring woke back. Anyway, the Super Bowl performance began in some underground club beneath U.S. Bank Stadium in Minneapolis. Possibly this was the same locale where Bill Belichick hours earlier was diagramming that pass that Tom Brady couldn't catch up to. You know, it's a good thing Minnesota won the bid to host this Super Bowl because I would guess that given Justin Timberlake's busy schedule, he was just booked to play the underground club at U.S. Bank Stadium. And imagine if he was there at like a seven o'clock on a Sunday at the exact same time the Super Bowl was going on. No one would show up. Anyway, right from the start, Justin Timberlake made a prediction. Haters, say it's fake. Haters did say it was fake. Writing in the New York Times, John Karamanica said this. At this point, his best songs are fit for aerobics or soul cycle or factories run by robots. I'd just like to point out that is Daft Punk's niche. They own that space. But Karamanica's big critique harken back to 2004 when Timberlake and Janet Jackson experienced their infamous wardrobe malfunction at the Super Bowl. And Karamanica wrote, whiteness is a resilient armor. And he noted the convenience of having a non-white scapegoat. Whiteness being a resilient armor. I remember they said that when Pete Carroll decided to throw instead of run on fourth down. But the entire review seemed as much a review on Timberlake's whiteness as it was his performance. And yeah, the performance was only okay. And we know these days, whiteness is barely okay. I searched out the backstory and wound up in the backwoods. I realized that Timberlake's newest album is called Man of the Woods. It is a pander to whiteness. This according to Vice. That is a quote, a pander, not a pivot to whiteness, a pander to whiteness, they say. And Vox writes, Timberlake's white maleness is obviously not new. It is only newly visible. And echoing Caramonica, Vox also writes, Timberlake's inoffensive male whiteness has allowed him to walk away from situations that punish women and people of color. So, in that one Vox piece, you have references to his white maleness and his male whiteness. Ah, the whiteness and the maleness, and the maleness and the whiteness, as a witness to his likeness. I take issue with the statement that Timberlake's white maleness is obviously not new. It's only newly visible. No, no, no. From the moment I saw Justin Timberlake, I said to myself, there's a white guy. His white maleness was visible to me then. Maybe I just have white maledar. BuzzFeed's Anne Helen Peterson, and this article was really interesting. It was an analysis. It picked apart his latest Woodsy album. Timberlake is from Tennessee. He bought this big spread in Montana. And Peterson, who resides in the state of Montana, says that in Montana, these men, meaning Timberlake, she also talks about the, uh, the musician John Mayer, these men have effectively placed themselves in what writer Rich Benjamin calls whitetopias, places where white people are moving to be close to other white people. Bozeman, the urban center closest to Timberlake's homes, has seen its population grow by 64% since 2000, and 94% of the current population is white. Gallatin County, which includes Timberlake's home in the Yellowstone Club, is 95% white. I mean, to understand the full effect of what was going on here, Timberlake, during the Super Bowl, was wearing camouflage, but if you squinted, 
it had a picture of a deer on the shirt. And he also had a red neckerchief like you tie around a golden retriever so he won't be shot. Here's the problem for Timberlake. He is white. So what does he do when it comes time to go back to your roots? Because all performers do this, right? Jenny from the block or representing the 901 or the 404 or Queensbridge houses. So he, if he wants to return to the place of his origin, that is a white place. It is his ethnicity and he is male. That is his gender. And when he tries to peek outside his whiteness, this happens. He duets with a recording of Prince and he gets called out for appropriation. There was a lot of worry beforehand that Timberlake would be singing with Minneapolis native Prince in the Minneapolis Superdome. Specifically, he'd be singing with a hologram of Prince. Prince, it turns out, considered holograms demonic. And if Timberlake were to sing with him, that would, of course, demean the legacy of Prince, a brilliant musician who had some crazy ideas about demons residing in holograms. And Justin Timberlake has, in his career, been tagged with charges of appropriation. And now... He's being tagged with charges that he's embracing his whiteness. It does have a damned if you do, damned if you don't quality to it, doesn't it? So in that Vox piece, the author Constance Grady writes, Justin Timberlake is a walking monument, the worst kind, to what you can achieve in the music industry if you are not held back by a culture of systemic misogyny and racism. Can we just pause to concede maybe the guy has some talent, a little bit of talent? Okay, it's not just the whiteness and the maleness. There are a lot of white male guys who haven't brought sexy back to that degree. Anyway, the author goes on. Walking monument to what you can achieve if you're not held back by the culture of systemic misogyny and racism. And Britney and Janet, Britney Spears, Janet Jackson, are monuments to what happens if you are. Their careers are indelibly marked by their gender and race. And so is Timberlake's. All right. Britney, Britney Spears, Justin's old girlfriend, former musketeer, co-musketeer. She did have some rough patches after she broke up with Justin. Maybe it can be said that the music industry did not treat her right. But let me point this out. Yesterday, JT was being compared to Muzak for Robots in the New York Times. Two days before that, I read an article that pointed out that Britney Spears had just ended a Las Vegas residency where she netted close to $150 million. She was paid $475,000 per show and performed 248 shows. So being written off by an industry when the write-off is $150 million, even disgraced CEOs don't get that kind of money. Now, Janet Jackson absolutely was mistreated after the wardrobe malfunction, and Timberlake was kind of a shitheel about it. That part is true. But to test the premise that whiteness and maleness gives you leeway in the music industry, and that blackness and femaleness doesn't, strikes me as, well, it seems pretty obvious. That's a pretty obvious statement, but it's not what we might call dispositive. There are plenty of other counterexamples. And plenty of other reasons other than those two traits that might have propelled Justin Timberlake along. Uh, Counterexamples. R. Kelly, Chuck Berry, James Brown, Chris Brown. They all thrived after their brushes with infamy. Then again, if you want to talk about the benefits of whiteness, Jerry Lee Lewis never even got charged or properly investigated. I think that if you're Justin Timberlake and the hits are no longer at your fingertips and the product isn't as vibrant as it once was, 
getting hit with the race and gender-based criticism, that's inevitable. Of course the critics are going to say that his race and gender are what keeps him on the stage in the first place. I think that if the songs were better, and if the album was cooler, and if the dear, heavy camouflage was less pronounced, that Timberlake would be sidestepping the strain of criticism. But once the art goes, we're going to focus on the man. Yes, man. I said man. And he is white. And at 37, perhaps he's no longer able to bring the sexy back like he used to. And that's it for today's show that just was produced by Pierre Bienname, who is bringing Testy back. Them other boys, they don't know how to act. As just senior producer Mary Wilson has been known to acknowledge, she doesn't think it's so special what's behind your back. Now, Steve Lichtai, executive producer of Slate Podcast, he doesn't care for bringing sexy or testy back. That all puts him to sleep. So maybe he's bringing narcolepsy back. He's gotta hit the hay. The gist. There are some who say sexy doesn't need to come back because sexy never went away. And there are others who point to acid wash jeans and say, no, you're wrong. Oom-peru-de-peru-du-peru, and thanks for listening.